0: I'm sure I'd be a little embarrassed by all of that cheering if I could hear it. Um, Welcome to our brand new summer series on the book of Isaiah. Um, We're calling this uh, series God's Story of Hope. God's Story of Hope. The book of Isaiah, as you may know, is one of the longer books in the Bible, 66 chapters. Uh, But we won't be covering everything in the book we will be hitting many great sections that give a great overview of the main ideas that Isaiah teaches about. And one of the best things about the study of Isaiah is that we'll be learning a lot about God himself. Isaiah teaches us uh, many different things about the nature of God and about his relationship with us, his people. Um, Isaiah is adamant that there is only one God who is the creator of all and and sovereign over all nations and all history. So that in Isaiah chapter 40, for instance, it says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And we'll see in that same chapter that God is not far off in the distance, uh, but is directly involved in our lives and concerned with the things that are happening in our daily lives. Um, To question that is to misunderstand who God is. Uh, Again, in chapter 40, it says, Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah also declares the holiness of God. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. To be holy is to be completely separate from any wrongdoing or evil. Our God never does anything wrong. The holiness of God also means that he is the righteous judge who will punish the wicked for their sins. In chapter 11, Isaiah tells us, with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. But he is also, Isaiah tells us, a compassionate and merciful God and eager to forgive repentant sinners. He says, let the wicked forsake their ways. And the unrighteous, their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And of course, Isaiah also contains the most detailed prophecies about the coming Messiah and the salvation that he brings. He says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All those kinds of passages, those ones and and many others like it, will be covered over the next couple of months as we work our way through the book of Isaiah. Right now, we're just going to be in chapter 1, which seems to have been written by Isaiah kind of as an overview introduction to his book. Uh, in the first book uh, first verse of the book Isaiah gives kind of the title page he identifies himself and he gives the time frame during which his prophecies were made he says the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah Jotham Ahaz and Hezekiah kings of Judah Now, combined, those four kings uh, who are mentioned there reigned for over 100 years. Uh, And uh, he tells us that uh, it was only in the last year of Uzziah uh, that Isaiah received his calling to be God's prophet. Still, his ministry spanned over many decades, many years. And the messages written in this book are kind of written highlights of many sermons and words from God that Isaiah spoke to the people over many years. So we shouldn't think of the book as uh, having been written within a few weeks or months where Isaiah just sat down and really worked hard and wrote out the book of Isaiah. No, uh, rather, Isaiah uh, heard his messages from God and saw his visions from God over many years, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through him, he wrote a record of the prophecies that he was given. So, the book was composed bit by bit over the decades and only put into its final form in the later years of Isaiah's life. Now, one of the books that I was uh, reading and studying, preparing for this series, uh, compared the book of Isaiah to a symphony in which a, a, a musical theme will be raised, or in Isaiah's case, a theological theme will be raised, and then it will move the music will move on, and then that same theme will come back with variations on the theme. And then it'll move on again, and then another theme this will come in. And then the same theme will be brought back again. Just the way that's done in music is the way Isaiah does it with his theology, uh, bringing up the same key themes, keep coming up using different expressions, different imagery, to describe them. And as we work through uh, Isaiah over these weeks, I challenge you to look and see. How many of those themes will you see that keep coming back uh, in the book of Isaiah as we uh, teach through it? And we will be putting together a reading plan, uh, similar to the way we did for our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to have two reading plans for you. One will be for the ambitious among you who want to read the entire book of Isaiah. Um, You'll be uh, given a a chart that gives you about how much to read each week in order to uh, make it through Isaiah while we are preaching through it. And then we'll also be giving uh, a, uh, another reading plan that just gives you what the passages are that we'll be preaching about each week uh, so that you can read those and be prepped for the sermon and get the most out of what we are teaching here if you have read um, the uh, the passages ahead of time. And even this week, you could have done that. If you're following us on Facebook and Instagram, we let you know that we would be uh, in chapter one this week, and that you could read chapter one to prep for the series. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I know you're watching on Facebook right now. Uh, make sure you're following all of our uh, social media posts so that you can be kept up to date on all the things that are going on with our church. Um, Oh, and if you, uh, those reading plans, we're going to be emailing those out to you. Uh, If you want the plan and you don't see your email there, you can get in touch with us and we'll send it to you. You can write to me at james.embry at clearwater.church, and uh, and I'll send you that reading plan. But now, let's let's continue on into chapter one. And uh, one more thing before we, well, no, I'm going to skip that. Um, Here's uh, verse two. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Right there is one of the most important things to know about the book of Isaiah and really about the Bible as a whole, but, uh, but Isaiah is declaring it right here. What we are reading and studying when we read the book of Isaiah is not the wisdom of a great man of God. It is uh, not the advice of a great pastor who knew God well and was skilled at describing the right way to live in order to please God. This is not the wisdom of ancient peoples that has been passed on over the generations so that we can read and benefit from their uh, great wisdom of the past. This is the words of God himself Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. When God speaks, all must listen to his words. This is no mere human message. The Lord has spoken. This idea is repeated two more times just here in chapter one in three solemn declarations. First, we have there, the Lord has spoken. And then in verse 10, he says, hear the word of the Lord. And then in, in the section we're covering today, ends with the statement, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is not saying, my message is based on things that I've learned about God over the years. No, the mouth of Of the Lord has spoken. We are studying the very words that God caused Isaiah to write through the guidance of the Holy Spirit working through him. And how should we respond to that fact? We should listen. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. Everyone, everywhere must listen to this message from God. So now let's take a look here at what is the message that Isaiah brings from God. He says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And no, God is not saying that his people are as dumb as an ox. He's saying they're dumber than an ox. <laughs> uh, yeah, God says he has reared children and brought them up. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about his, his people, the chosen people of God, the, the people of Judah, were the people of Isaiah's nation, were the, the people of God. And, uh, and that's the main people that he's talking about there their relationship with God is frequently referred to in the Bible as a parent and children relationship. But of course, this also applies to us as Christians because we are also described in the Bible as children of God. The Gospel of John tells us that all who believe in his name have been given the right to become the children of God. God has been good to his children. He has offered them his care and has shown them how they should live, but they have rebelled against him, showing less wisdom and understanding than a barnyard animal. He goes on in verse 4. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. These are God's children, the people that he has chosen to reveal the right way to live, to reveal himself. But they are described as rebels, sinful, guilty, evildoers, and corrupt. Forsaking, spurning, and turning their backs on God. This is not a very pleasant message to start Isaiah's uh, message from God. God has spoken, and what he has to say is condemnation for his people. But God is not done speaking yet. Remember the title of the series, God's Story of Hope. Well, this story begins, as most good stories do, with a conflict, a problem that needs to be solved. But there will also be hope in the end. It's coming. But first, I'm afraid there's some more bad news. Verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. God has not been silent about the sins of his people. Their sins have brought terrible consequences on them. Isaiah uses the imagery of the people of God as a body that has been beaten as a punishment for its evil deeds. The whole body has been pounded and beaten to pieces so that there is no health or soundness left. But does God delight in this with a serves you right kind of a laugh? No, God calls to his people. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? God longs to end their punishment and heal them and restore them. But he can't do it as long as they persist in rebellion. The next verses describe the reality of the situation that uh, Judah was in. That he's using a metaphor in the other verses here, it's a reality. This is what was happening when they were being attacked by the Assyrians. It says, Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. You see, the Assyrians, the the, the great superpower of the time, were on a conquering uh, uh, campaign, and they had just finished off the northern tribes of Israel in the the nation of Israel. They had had a long siege there and finally conquered the capital, and they were now moving down into Judah. And they had actually been successful in conquering and taking over and destroying the entire nation except for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the daughter of Zion there in verse uh, 8, was the only thing left. And you'll have to see later on in the story in the book of Isaiah, he actually tells the story of how uh, Jerusalem was saved from uh, being conquered by the Assyrians themselves. But, uh, but the point here is that most of the nation had been overrun by an invading army. And Isaiah is saying that that happened because of their rebellion against God. And Isaiah finishes this description of judgment with this grim statement in verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, uh, are two cities that were once on the Jordan Plain that had been utterly destroyed by God as a punishment for their great sins. Isaiah uh, says that God spared a few survivors, a remnant of the people, so that Judah was not also completely wiped out in judgment. And from this description of God's attempts to get the people's attention through punishment, Isaiah now moves on to a message about their religious practices. You might think that a people who are described as having forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him would be a people who are not very religious. Sounds like a description of irreligious people who don't bother to follow the religious practices of their forefathers, like attending religious gatherings or offering sacrifices and praying very many prayers. You might think that, but you'd be wrong, according to Isaiah. Here's what he says in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, or to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court's? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Wow. That's some surprising stuff right there. These people are practicing the religion that God taught them at Mount Sinai when Moses went up on the mountain and God revealed to them, this is how I want you to worship me. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're they're following The the, the religion that's described in in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're bringing so many sacrifices that God says, you're trampling my courts with sacrifices. They're offering incense. They're observing the Sabbath, and they're, they're doing the annual feast. They're doing Yom Kippur. They're doing the Passover. They're doing the Feast of Tabernacles. But God takes no pleasure in their worship. In fact, it is detestable to him. He cannot bear it, and he hates it with all his being. They're offering the sacrifices that he taught them to offer. They're observing the festivals that he taught them to observe. They're keeping the Sabbath, and God hates it with all his being. And he described them earlier as having abandoned him and turned their backs on him. Even their prayers, which God says are many, are not acceptable to God. He refuses to listen to them. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, what this means is that you can show up for church every Sunday, you can celebrate Christmas and Easter with all the great spiritual songs You can give an offering in the box at the back. You can even tune into online services with your family when you're under lockdown order. You can offer many prayers to God, and God might look at your worship and say it is detestable to Him. Does that scare you a little bit? It ought to. It ought to scare you more than any virus or disease. This is a solemn warning from the mouth of God. Religious practices are sometimes worthless assemblies that bring God no pleasure. And we're not talking about pagan religions that worship Buddha or Krishna or whatever. We're talking about people who are following the Bible. God had given his people ways of dealing with sin in their lives, Bring sacrifice to offer as a substitution. Observe the day of atonement. But they were doing those things. And God hated it. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. This is a warning. But a warning means that there is also a way out of it, right? A warning is pointless if it's simply bad stuff is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. The next section here in Isaiah, uh, in in chapter 1 here, tells us what was wrong with the people's worship and why God was not happy with it. He says here in uh, end of verse 15 and verse 16, he says, "'Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean.'" Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, there's two sides to the reforms that will remove God's pleasure from their worship. If they will do these two things, then their worship will be acceptable to God. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Now, we know that no one can completely fulfill these two commands, to stop doing wrong and learn to do right. And part of why we know it is because Isaiah teaches us that, right? Um, Isaiah chapter 53 is the source of the quote where it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. God knows that we're all sinners, that we are all unable to really stop doing doing wrong and learn to do right. We will never be completely done with sin in this life. But that does not mean that our worship will always be hypocritical and detestable to God. It is possible with the help of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to clean up our act. We'll not be perfectly clean, but we can learn to have consistent victory over some particular sins in our lives. If you have a habit of sinful anger, that does not need to be a lifelong habit. God can help you overcome that sin. If you're addicted to pornography, that does not need to be a lifelong sin. You can have victory over it. So when God says to us, wash and make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, he expects us to fight hard against sin in our lives. God does not expect us to live sinless lives, but he expects us to resist temptation. He expects us to examine ourselves and to evaluate our actions and see whether they are right. And he expects us to repent and reject sin and turn away from it when we fail. It's when we condone the sin in our lives, when we don't even try to do right and fight temptation, that God looks at our worship and our religion and he says... Your worship is a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing it. So, part one is to fight the sin in our lives. Part two is to learn to do right. And God gives four statements of what he means by doing right seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. This is what the people in Isaiah's time were failing to do. This is what made their hands full of blood. This is the sin that they needed to get rid of. They were participating in, or at least were turning a blind eye to, the oppression of the powerless. They were allowing injustice to run rampant in their community, and they weren't doing anything about it. The poor were not being fairly treated. They weren't being paid a decent wage. Widows and orphans who had no political or economic power were not being treated as equals. Righteous living is to help those who need our help. Now, we can debate about how uh, is the best way to help the poor, and we get into politics pretty quickly when we start talking about these things. But here's what we cannot say. We cannot say that the poor and the powerless are not our problem. They got themselves into this mess, and now they have to live with it. Not my responsibility to help them. That is the exact attitude that the people of Isaiah's day had, and God says in response, When you pray, I hide my eyes from you. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. What are you doing to help the poor and the powerless around you? Nothing? God is not pleased. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. And now we have the most famous lines from this chapter. Here in uh, verse 18, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. All of this criticism and judgment and condemnation is not the final word. The final word is that there is hope, hope for cleansing and for forgiveness. God calls to us, come now, let's talk about this. Be reasonable. Your your sins are scarlet, which is clearly a reference to, to, to blood, that redness of our sins. They shall be as white as snow. You can be made pure again. God offers you complete and total exoneration. God wants to forgive you. That's the point of this whole chapter of the whole Bible, why did God bother to send prophets? Why did he inspire Isaiah to write this? If he simply wanted to bring the punishment that we deserved down on us, he could have simply done it. But that is not what he wants to see happen. God loves us. He wants us to turn away from our sins. He wants to forgive us. And so the last verse today, verse 20, It says, sorry, verse 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Two alternatives are laid before us. We can choose prosperity or destruction, reward, or punishment. God will give us either one. The final line that gives us such a sense of authority, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So how are we going to go from willful sinners to willing and obedient servants of God? How do we make the switch from rebellion to righteousness? Well, there's no doubt that a part of it is simply choosing to do what's right. But those of us who have tried that know that it's uh, trying hard only gets you so far. Uh, uh, We need help in order to qualify for the Lord's favor instead of for his wrath. And God has indeed sent us help. Jesus is the one who has been perfectly willing and obedient. He never resisted or rebelled. He has taken up the cause of us who were powerless to defeat all of the sin in our lives. He has pled our case. And because he is our champion, our advocate, and our representative, we can have the final victory over sin. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, not only are our sins wiped away, but his righteousness is credited to our account. He does both for us. He doesn't do any wrong, and he does what is right. His record of perfect obedience can be ours if we put our faith in him. And then, We will obey God and fight against the remaining sin in our lives and seek to bring justice to the powerless, not to earn God's favor, but because we have been granted God's favor. It is only through Jesus that we can truly live a life that God approves and worship him in a way that brings God joy. So, Let us put our faith in Jesus and receive his unmerited grace. Then we will have the proper motivation of love and gratitude that will help us to do what we can to live for God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for giving Isaiah this warning for us, for telling us through the prophet about our sinfulness and about our need to turn away from our sins. Please help us. Help us to turn away from our sins. Help us to seek your repentance. Help us to make the right decision and then give us your grace Give us your mercy. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.